Welcome to episode 13 of the Truth Quest podcast. Today we will be discussing the truth about the truth. Please do me a favor and share the show with your friends and or debate partners. If you are having a discussion about social security, God and evil, Fortnite, socialized medicine, or truth in general, send them the specific episode or just tell them about the podcast in general. Also, please consider supporting the show financially. Every dollar donated will be used to expand the reach of the show. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for the link. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at the TruthQuest Podcast fan page located at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast, where I engage in discussions with you, post articles related to current and past episode topics, and announce when the latest episode has been published. The easiest way to stay in touch and stay up to date is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or Podbean. In this episode, I recount a conversation I had a few months ago. Those of you who know me well will likely figure out who that is, but that's not the point of the episode. The point of this episode is the lessons the conversation teaches. The point is the learning opportunity presented by the conversation. So I'm sitting on the couch with my friend, quote unquote, and the TV is on, and he says, I can't watch the news anymore. It's too depressing. I ask why. Trump, he's ruining the country. I can't stand him. Huh, I thought the country was pretty much in the shitter before he took office. I don't think the country's in the shitter, he says. Well, you can't have it both ways. Either Trump is ruining the country in the short time he's been in office, or the country is not ruined. Well, I interrupted him and said, I define being in the shitter as a government that spies on its own people, sends our young people to die and be maimed while spending trillions of dollars on undeclared wars. I would include the 20 plus trillion dollar national debt, which is really over 100 trillion when you include unfunded liabilities from unconstitutional programs like Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. Wait a minute, he interrupted. What are you saying about Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare? They are unconstitutional, I replied. Then I added, so are most federal agencies. That's outrageous. No, it's not. Read Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. It says nothing about the federal government running a retirement fund or paying for health care. Hell, back then, life expectancy was, what, 40 years? And no one retired. So why would they have even thought to include it? He chimed in, without those programs, how else would the founders centralize health care? Do you know how expensive my insurance would be without Medicare? Oh boy, I said, thinking to myself that he just threw me a hanging curveball. I continued, you should listen to episode three of my podcast. I recorded it for this very purpose. The founders had no intention of centralizing much of anything. Certainly not health care, nor managing the nation's education system, or protecting the environment, or regulating our food and drugs, or establishing a Department of Labor, or any of the thousands of other agencies run by the federal government. He simply replied, I disagree with you. I countered, you can't disagree with the truth. At this point, I'm getting the you are crazy look, so I figured I'd keep driving the point home. Where in the Constitution can I find Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the EPA, Department of Education, the FDA, or Department of Labor? He ignored my question and said, the Constitution wasn't meant to limit the federal government. In exasperation, I said, that is the primary reason for the Constitution, to outline the limited powers of the federal government. We fought a revolution against a king that had virtually unlimited power. 
Why the hell would we establish a new nation and give the central government unlimited power? When no reply seemed imminent, I asked, what about the Tenth Amendment? What about it, he said. Well, it basically says whatever functions is not specifically listed in the Constitution is reserved for the states. The founders sure went through a lot of trouble defining, as James Madison said, quote, the few and defined responsibilities of the federal government, while describing the state's responsibilities as, quote, numerous and indefinite. The contrast seems pretty clear to me. Few and defined for the feds, and numerous and indefinite for the states. That's coming from the so-called father of the Constitution. So you're saying the states would take care of stuff like education, health care, retirement, the environment, labor laws, and such? Well, first off, for over 200 years, education was a state and local concern. The Department of Education was founded in 1979, so that agency is not only unconstitutional, but clearly unnecessary. Well, I don't want to disagree with you on that. Well, hallelujah, we agree on something. Well, what about health care and retirement, smarty pants? I answered, I don't know the answer to that. There are 50 states. America is not supposed to be a one-size-fits-all country. If people demanded it and elected legislators that favored such things, then yes, it would be implemented at the state level. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, most states have balanced budget amendments, so the only way to pay for such programs is to raise taxes, which, as you know, is never popular. The federal government doesn't have that pesky balanced budget problem. They simply print the money, sell bonds, thus our $20 trillion debt. Besides education, I just don't think the states would do any of that. I replied, and that's a bad thing? Well, I can see where management of the environment should be centralized to some extent, as some states might not be as diligent as others. Same thing with the FDA. I do buy your argument regarding the Department of Labor. I don't see any need for the federal government to get involved with that. After a long pause, he added emphatically, However, when it comes to health care, how would people pay for, for it without these programs? And some retired people's only income is Social Security. How would they survive without that money? Okay, so we have some progress here. You are agreeing with me that some of this stuff is not the purview of the federal government, but you are not basing it on anything concrete. You just have a general feeling about them. I am basing my argument on a contract that the states entered into with the newly formed federal government, the United States Constitution. It just keeps things cleaner. If we are basing policy decisions on people's feelings, then it would be virtually impossible to come to an agreement. Okay, I see your point. I do want to answer your question. Regarding the retirement question, if people did not have the unconstitutional government-run Ponzi scheme known as Social Security, they would most likely take personal responsibility over the course of their working career and save for their own retirement or they would turn to their family or church or charity if needed. All I get is more shaking of the head. What, I probe? You disagree that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme? Or you disagree that it's unconstitutional? Or does the personal responsibility part make you mad? No, I understand that it's basically a Ponzi scheme and the personal responsibility part is a legitimate explanation. I am still struggling with the unconstitutional argument. Moving on, I said, Regarding your health care costs comment, did you ever consider that it would actually be cheaper if the federal government was not involved in health care? Good grief, what are you talking about? How would it be less expensive without the federal government paying most of the bills? I want to pause the dialogue here and make a point. One of the takeaways from the TruthQuest podcast should be to learn how to ask questions. You do not have to confront opposing viewpoints with a counterpoint, especially not when you have truth on your side. 
A lot of people are afraid of confrontation, and they claim that they don't know enough about a particular topic to get into a discussion with someone. What these people fail to realize is they are not engaged in a boxing match, trading punches with their debate partner. Whether the topic is politics or Christian apologetics, you are simply helping your debate partner seek the truth and using questions that force them to articulate or defend their views is one of the most powerful weapons you have in your arsenal. Back to the dialogue. So I said, how did your parents pay for health care? They had health insurance. I didn't ask you that, but okay, they had insurance. Likely it was a catastrophic policy to cover the worst case scenarios. But I bet you can tell me the name of your childhood pediatrician and his nurse. Yep. That's because back in the day when you got sick, you went to see the neighborhood doctor and your parents paid him for services rendered out of pocket. There was no insurance to file, no referrals to seek, no paperwork, etc. Back then, an office visit probably cost two bucks or maybe they bartered, something like that. And I bet the office staff consisted of a receptionist slash secretary slash nurse and the doctor. Why was it so simple and inexpensive back then as opposed to the, to the insanity known as the current American healthcare system? Because of government, he said sarcastically. Exactly. The lack of government involvement in the healthcare system meant lower costs. See episode 9, The Truth About the American Healthcare System, for more on this topic. He reluctantly agreed with my argument with a nod of the head, so I continued. Now, both the federal and state governments deserve some blame when it comes to the rising costs of insurance premiums because they impose thousands of mandates on health insurance companies. They force them to cover all kinds of things whether the policyholder wants that coverage or not. So instead of me calling up my insurance broker and buying a high-deductible $150 a month policy that only covers catastrophic events, he can only offer me a policy that costs $500 or $1,000 a month but includes coverage for things I don't want, like maternity coverage, abortions, drug and alcohol rehabilitation, hair loss, etc. Other than shaking of the head, I did not get a response, so I figured I'd move on. So we kind of got off on a tangent there. You said you think Trump is ruining the country. That's funny, because I thought the same thing about Obama. What did you think about Obama? He's smart, articulate, diplomatic, and a good communicator. Well, what is Trump doing to ruin the country, I asked. He's ruined our relationship with our allies in Europe. Given the timing of this conversation, the G7 meeting had just occurred in Canada, where Trump verbally sparred with a number of leaders and was threatening to impose tariffs. I jumped in. Look, there's a lot of validity to the argument that we saved Europe during World War II. And since then, we've been fitting the bill for the world. We pay a large portion of the bill for the United Nations and NATO. The United States taxpayers pay to station troops all over the world, which reduces the amount other nations' citizens have to spend on their own defense. Trump is just articulating those truths in a way that no other president has had the balls to before. Did you prefer Obama's approach to tour the world apologizing for America? No, I was not comfortable with that apology tour, as people called it. And no, I don't think we should keep paying for everyone else's benefit. Well, hallelujah, we agree on something else. Well, I don't like what he's doing taking children away from their parents, he added. You mean the children of illegal immigrants, I asked? Yes. Did you know that it's a federal law that was on the books long before Trump took office? He is simply enforcing federal law, which is the executive branch's responsibility. I went on to explain to him that the law forces the removal of children from detention centers after two or three weeks. I was not exactly sure myself, but I knew it wasn't a Trump thing. 
Three days after this conversation, Trump signed an executive order to address the separation of children of illegal immigrants from their parents. Well, he's a bully. He has to get his way, he said. Kind of like Lyndon Johnson, Nixon, and Teddy Roosevelt, I probed. Well, yes, he said reluctantly. The way I look at it, every president is corrupt to a certain extent. How so, he asked. Well, how do you think you get to be president? You raise tons of money and kiss lots of asses, he interrupted. Exactly. So once you get in office, you are obligated to pay back those debts, so to speak. You are in debt to lobbyists and donors. You are in debt to members of Congress who endorsed you and stumped for you. It is truly a swamp, like Trump says. Why don't you applaud him for recognizing this and trying to drain it? I did not get a response to that question, and if I was following my own advice, I would have forced him to answer it before allowing him to move on. But he quickly added, And he's a liar. He lies about everything. What about Obama? Did he ever lie to the American people? I asked. I don't know. Uh, not, not that I can think of, he added unconvincingly. What about Obamacare? Do you remember if you like your plan, you can keep your plan? Or the average American will save $2,500 a year? Or the debate and negotiations will be broadcast on C-SPAN? Again, no response. Or what about the IRS scandal, where conservative Tea Party groups were purposely targeted? Or what about Benghazi? Or what about the red line in Syria or the promise to close down Guantanamo Bay? That's just off the top of my head. I bet I can do a simple internet search and prod you with a hundred Obama lies in less than a minute. They all lie, he says. Exactly my point. So why did you single out Trump as a liar? You have blinders on. You root for your team, the Democrats. You watch networks that lean in your ideological direction, so your opinions are confirmed. You do not seek the truth. You seek affirmation. Before he could respond, I quickly added, what about Hillary? Clinton? Yeah, Clinton. Is she a liar too? About what? Oh, I don't know. What about her illegal email server? Followed by the destruction of evidence related to that crime. That server was a direct violation of federal law and State Department rules. That's the department that she was supposedly running. If it wasn't for the corruption at the highest levels of the FBI, she would likely be in jail right now. Oh, give me a break. She would not be in jail, he said. Okay, what about the Clinton Foundation? All the allegations of mishandled funds, extravagant lifestyles, quid pro quo exchanges. All that is speculation, he said. Of course it's speculation because the Justice Department did not push the FBI to conduct a full-scale investigation. But aren't you curious about the truth, or is protecting your team more important than the truth? I continued, What are your thoughts about Hillary's handling of all Bill's sexual harassment accusers? What about it? Well, to say the least, Hillary was, shall we say, less than sympathetic to his victims? Maybe. Then 20 or 30 years later, when she's running for president, she tweets out how all women in those situations should be heard? Don't you recognize the brashness of her actions and willingness to lie because she knows most of the media leans left and her base, people like you, don't care as long as your team wins in the end? Where do you get all this stuff? Watching Fox News? I can't stand that network. Why? At least they make an effort to present both sides of the story. Sure, they certainly have a bias, but they don't silence the opposition by omission. More shaking of the head. Here's the problem as I see it. You only go this deep, as I held my thumb open about an inch from my first finger. You just look for confirmation of your point of view and ignore any evidence that contradicts it. I think that's sad and disappointing. Everyone only goes that deep, he defended himself. Exactly, I agree. That's another reason I say America is in trouble. Few people are willing to drive to search for the truth. 
that was pretty much the end of the conversation. Afterwards, I realized there were a number of lessons hidden inside that brief exchange and immediately started writing down the dialogue. Here are the four lessons I took away from that conversation. First, if discovering the truth is not your goal, you will only see what you want to see. Number two, when it comes to politics, no matter what side you are on ideologically, there are bad players. I think it is important for all of us to acknowledge this fact. Anyone who has paid attention to the mainstream media for any length of time knows how bad national Republicans and well-known conservatives are, right? Consider the narratives around Nixon, Reagan, the Bushes, and Trump. What about Supreme Court justices like Clarence Thomas, Scalia, Alito, and now Kavanaugh? What about commentators like Rush Limbaugh, Laura Ingram, Glenn Beck, Michelle Balkin, Newt Gingrich, Larry Elder, Ben Shapiro? The list is endless, and their treatment is essentially a constant besmirching of their reputations. As this conversation highlights, the mainstream media has all but ignored Bill and Hillary's numerous scandals during their three decades on the national political scene. But how much do you hear in the mainstream media about JFK's shenanigans, or LBJ's behavior and comments about minorities, or Jimmy Carter's incompetence, or John Edwards' abhorrent behavior, or Joe Biden's foot-and-mouth problems? How about John Kerry's hypocrisy? You never hear a critical word about the social engineering liberal Supreme Court justices. Rather than rooting for a team and avoiding news sources that might challenge your beliefs, I encourage you to dig for and seek the truth. With the internet at your fingertips, it literally takes 20 seconds to do an online search and pull up a dozen articles about a topic, and unless you're using Google, you should receive a variety of sources with a variety of perspectives in your search results. If you know what I'm talking about there, hit me up on the Facebook page. Part of the problem may be our inability to decipher fact from fiction. While I was transcribing this conversation, I came across a news article about a Pew Research Center study showing that only a quarter of U.S. adults could fully identify factual statements, as opposed to opinion, in news stories. The study further showed that depending on your party affiliation, quote, Republican and Democrats were also more likely to think news statements are factuals when the statements appeal to their side even if the statements were opinions, end quote. Proving yet again that Greg Kokel's quote about bias is true. If someone is determined to stick to biases instead of facts, then there is not much I have to say to him. He is stumbling over an obstacle he has placed in the way himself, end quote. The third lesson I took away from this conversation is to never assume you know everything. Doing so hampers your ability to discover the truth. There is almost always more to the story than what you heard or thought you heard. Just consider this conversation where I challenge the constitutionality of all of America's entitlement programs. I guarantee my debate partner had never considered that idea, nor did he have any concept of Article 1, Section 8, or the Tenth Amendment. Or consider his critique of Trump as a bully despite the fact that he lived through the Johnson and Nixon administrations and is a history buff well aware of Teddy Roosevelt's conduct. Finally, number four, a little intellectual curiosity goes a long way. Consider the laundry list of events that were covered in this conversation, from Social Security to the Constitution and health care, to various presidents, immigration, the media, and political scandals. These are complex issues. Intellectual honesty requires that you understand that fact. If you maintain a simplistic view of a complex topic, or you have no view of a complex topic, alarm bells should go off. You shouldn't be a partisan hack robot. Hillary, good. Trump, bad, NSA spying, no opinion, 
Social Security, good. National debt, bad when Bush was president. No opinion during Obama's years. Everything Obama, good. The constitutionality of most federal programs, no opinion. Sending our young men to die in undeclared wars, no opinion. Unless a Republican is president. IRS, Benghazi, Obamacare lies, the Clinton Foundation, Hillary's illegal email server, Bill Clinton's history with women, no opinion. Thank goodness we didn't get into a discussion about the Mueller investigation of Trump or Trump's history with women. I'm sure my debate partner is well informed of all those gory details and has a strong opinion. Trump, bad. Hopefully you get where I'm going with this. People are more than welcome to live in ignorance. They say ignorance is bliss. However, I think we have a responsibility to force our friends, colleagues, and co-workers to at the very least think about what they are saying, and at most ask them to defend their opinions. I think we have an obligation to challenge or engage them, gently, with love, with respect, of course.